us. If you're visiting, you may not know this, we're walking through the Bible, taking a book a week. Now, not every week do we do this. We're breaking the Psalms out into several weeks and the like, but we're taking a book a week, and the people here are reading ahead, and they're discussing it, and they're sending me questions, and it's a lot of fun so far. We're in 1 Samuel today. We take a look in different ways at these. Next week, 2 Samuel will be doing a whole different way. Today, we'll be looking at the whole book. Next week, we're going to take a look at one major story in the book and use that to bring a lesson home to us. We're going to try to keep it fresh, but here we go. By this point in the story, we, we know God a little bit, and he wants us to learn something new. We've seen creation. We've seen law. We've seen how law adapted and changed as people sought out the mind of God, how wars started and how wars fizzled, and how God reached out and loved a Moabite woman and brought her into his family line of Jesus. And now we have to learn to talk to each other. Once upon a time, God walked with us in the garden. That was lost. Jesus will eventually come in our Bible story and walk among us again, but that's a long way in the future. In the meantime, man and God have got to learn how to work with each other. And as any newlywed couple in here will tell you, that can be fraught with difficulties. Because all of a sudden, it, you find that love is great, but it can also be messy. And now you've got to talk and figure out how to talk. I've had ladies that say, my, my husband used to talk to me all the time for hours on the phone, and now that we're married, he doesn't talk to me. Well, that's because men talk to solve problems. And he had a problem he wasn't married to you. Now he is problem solved. He's really done. Um, and we, yes, we, we do have to work on that, uh, guys. You can't use that as an excuse to shut it all down. But it is that, that whole thing about we got to work with each other. How do we work with each other now? We're in First Samuel today. So why don't we start with Isaiah? Isaiah 6 and verse 8, where the scripture says, I heard the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send? Who will go for us? And I said, here am I. Send me. The call. We've heard of it. Some of us believe we've received it. We're all interested in it. So why aren't more of us hearing it? Well, it all boils down to noise. We live in a very noisy world. We are bombarded by noise every conscious moment auditory noise, but also visual noise, mental noise. It can be hard to find quiet unless you go for it purposefully and you refuse to be distracted by the noise. I've had people talk to me about how they'd like to read their Bible more, and I've asked them, where do you read it? And they've told me, well, I listen to it as I'm driving, nothing wrong with that at all, or I sit down in my living room, try to read, you need an electronic-free room. You really do. Or you're going to check your phone. You're going to check. You're going to hear something. Uh, uh, I don't know. Tennessee might score. It could happen. And uh, then. <laughs> sorry. Sorry. I, uh, I, I lived 10 years in Detroit. I know how it feels. <laughs> I do. Never forget. I had two tickets to a Lions game and somebody broke in my car and left two more. It was. <laughs> 
But it's, it's too easy to get distracted. You need an electronics-free room. You need a place where you're not going to hear anything but God. To hear the voice of God, you've got to get quiet enough to hear it. You've got to be willing also to hear it. That's why God sometimes interrupts the psalmist whenever he writes. In Psalm 45, the psalmist starts with that famous line, The Lord is our refuge and strength and ever-present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth give way and the mountains fall into the heart of the sea. And in the middle of all that stormy imagery, God breaks in and says, Be still and know that I am God. Don't look at all the storm. It's pretty imagery. But remember who I am. Stop for a moment. Think. Listen. Hear. Or how about that wonderful little line in the, that, that fantastic tiny book called Habakkuk that goes, The Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silent before him. Call and response. It's one of the major themes of Scripture. In fact, call and response, love one another, and the journey motif are the three biggest themes that run from Genesis through Revelation. Call and response, and yet we rarely talk about it. So let's go to a book that illustrates call and response starting in its first chapter. And I love it that instead of what you would expect, God calls and someone responds, we see a woman named Hannah who is misunderstood, who is hurting, who is calling out to God. In 1 Samuel chapter 1, verses 10 through 12, in her deep anguish, Hannah prayed to the Lord, weeping bitterly. She made a vow saying, Lord Almighty, if you will only look on your servant's misery, and remember me, I have no idea what that was either, and not forget your servant, but give her a son, then I will give him to the Lord for all the days of his life, and no razor will ever be used on his head. That was a, a, a story of a, a vow that they would make. And she kept on praying to the Lord. Eli observed her mouth. Now, he thinks she's drunk because he just sees her mouth moving but not hearing. He thinks he's talking to herself. And, it, and it's sad. It really is sad. But God responds to this. In chapter 1, verses 20, and then we'll skip down to 27 and 28. So in the course of time, Hannah became pregnant and gave birth to a son. She named him Samuel, saying, Because I asked the Lord for him. I prayed for this child, and the Lord has granted me what I asked of him. So now I give him to the Lord. For his whole life he will be given over to the Lord, and he worshiped the Lord there. I will confess I have a personal interest in this story, not just because of call and response and ministers receive calls, but also because... This is our story in some ways. My mother, a sweet little Irish lady, married to a hard Scottish man. They had daughter after daughter, and the doctors then told her, you're done. Uh, you can't have any more children. It's, it's over for you. And she said, no, I have to have a son. And they said, why? And she said, because I want to give him to the Lord. I want him to serve God. Well, they said it's not going to happen, but I did. And she gave me to the Lord, even though I kept, I was the gift that kept running away, frankly, and tried not to be given to the Lord. And there are many times that I found myself hearing the voice of God sitting in this country or that country or in that school or that school or, and thinking, you know, I have zero chance 
because somewhere on the planet there's this little Irish lady praying to God and he listens to her. So this story, it's kind of personal. I love how the book starts. And then Samuel, he's a boy when we first meet him. And I often wonder about that, you know, given away. Well, they, she would have seen him and been a part of his life. But he lives there now in the tabernacle with the priest. He's come to serve the Lord. But those whose job it is to serve the Lord aren't doing a good job. In fact, the Bible calls them scoundrels. The Bible says that they took sexual advantage of the women that came to make offerings. That they stole the offerings so that they could have the best meat and not burn it up before the Lord. They're adulterers. They're thieves. God calls to Eli about this and evidently has done so in the past, but Eli does not respond. So God calls Samuel. Samuel would have been laying in bed and heard a voice, and the voice would have sounded something like, Samuel, Samuel, Ephohayita. Where are you? Fascinating question. God knows where he is, but Samuel doesn't. It's rather like Adam and Eve. Do you remember he walked in the garden and called out to them, where are you? He knew where they were, but they didn't understand where they were. We need that call and response to be located. This is where we are. Samuel, of course, runs into Eli and says, uh, did you call me? And he goes, no. On the, on the third, after the second time, Eli says, uh, if, if this happens a third time, it's going to be God. Just say, here am I, Anikon. I'm your servant. So Samuel hears the call and responds. Just like in chapter 1, chapter 3 has a call and response. Move forward in the book. And you find the Israelites are struggling against the Philistines. The Philistines were a part of a larger group known to history as the Sea Peoples. And they colonized all around the Mediterranean except for portions of North Africa. They, they even tried to take Egypt and came very close to taking Egypt. Powerful group, broken into different... Um, ethnic tribes but called the sea peoples and the philistines were the ones that were causing the main trouble for the israelites and it was a it was a horrible time the they had convinced the israelites if you just disarm we'll take care of you and so the israelites disarmed and then were enslaved and it happened again and again so finally these scattered tiny tribes of israel decide they've got to do something but rather than listen to God, they decided to use God. Now, that's very important. Are you going to listen to God? You're going to try to use him. They grabbed the ark, thinking we've got God in a box. And we can now run him out there, and they can't beat us because we've got God in this box. Same thing that Aaron did when he made the golden calf. He said, this is the God that brought you out of Egypt. He meant this to be a representation of Jehovah, of Yahweh of saying, this is your God. He's now very, he's, he's tamed. He's in a package. Anytime you try to put God in a box, you're going to frustrate yourself and lose God. He doesn't go in a box of ritual. He doesn't go in a box of tradition. He doesn't go in a box of national heritage. He doesn't go into a box of any kind you might want to put him in. They run him out for the battle. They lose the battle. They lose the ark. I have a friend named uh, Wayne Kirkpatrick who does mission work in, in India. 
And he had to cross a stream to get to this village. And the stream was very wide, but not deep at all. Uh, but it, was very, it moved very, very quickly. And so it's easy to lose your footing. And so he's making his way across. He hits the slip rock and he starts to go, about to fall down. But there's a rock just kind of poking up out of the water. So he times his fall to turn around and sit on a rock. Immediately, out of these wee huts come saffron-robed men with brooms screaming. They leap into the creek, the stream, and start beating him because he had sat on their god. All right, here's, here's a good rule of life. If your god can be sat on, get a new one. God doesn't say, put me in a box, carry me around, and I'll do what you want me to do. He's not a good luck charm. He says, come, let us reason together. Let's walk this out. Let's call and respond. Let's work it together. It, the Philistines made the same mistake. They thought, we've got God of Israel now. And they put him in, in front of their God in kind of a hilarious scene. They come up the next morning, and their God, Dagon, has fallen over in front of their the ark and they go well that's not good so they set him up and then the next day he's fallen over again they say we got to get rid of this thing but they don't get rid of it fast enough and so God sends them plague that's really what it was remember when they sent back the ark they also sent a bunch of gold and part of the gold was golden rats God had them overrun by rats that's why they got tumors in the groin is what the language there means they had bubonic plague so they say, let's get rid of the ark. It's dangerous. So they take it to a, a, a little town on the border, just a village, really, and it sits there. Nobody wants it now. Israelites weren't interested because they couldn't get God just to do what they wanted. The Philistines didn't want it. Well, there were some people, by the way, who did look in it. and Some of them died. That wasn't encouraging. And so they just left it alone. Chapter 7 Samuel calls the people together to repent, call upon the Lord, and God responds in a very meaningful way. As the Philistines approach, they assume their god, Baal, will protect them. Baal was the storm god. And so you might miss what happens there in chapter 7, because they're coming up in the name of the storm god, and God thunders against them and scares them so much they run away. God responded to the repentance of the people of Israel. People didn't learn from this. They still wanted a representation of leadership that they could see and control. And so they said, give us a king. Samuel says, you've got a king. His name is God. And they said, no, we want a king like all the other people have a king. Well, he warns them. This is not going to be good. He's going to tax you. He's going to send you to war. He's going to take your labor. He's going to take your children. But they do it anyway. Then chapter 10, verses 5 through 7 if we could get that up on the screens. Um, Saul listens, calls, and says, God will respond. After this, you will go to Gibeah of God. This is whenever he says, all right, give him a king. Here's this guy named Saul. Saul, here's your test. After this, you'll go to Gibeah of God, where there's a Philistine outpost. As you approach the town, you'll meet a procession of prophets coming down from the high places with lyres, timbers, uh, pipes, and harps being played there before them, and they will be prophesying. The Spirit of the Lord will come powerfully upon you, and you will prophesy with them, and you will be changed into a different person. Once these signs are fulfilled, do whatever your hand finds to do, for God is with you. In other words, God has called you, Saul. Now, you respond. 
you go to this place. When this happens, you do this. When that happens, then you two have come together. Call and response. You and God can work with each other. And Saul works, starts off very well. He's young, he's handsome, he's militarily smart. Uh, he's very popular, charismatic. But it all goes to his head. Samuel keeps warning the people, don't listen to the politics. Listen to God. First Samuel chapter 12, verses 14 and 15. If you fear the Lord and serve and obey him and do not rebel against his commands, and if both you and the king who reigns over you follow the Lord your God, good. But if you do not obey the Lord, if you rebel against his commands, his hand will be against you as it was against your ancestors. In other words, go ahead and set up your systems, but you listen to God. You don't listen to the system. Saul goes off the rails. He becomes so egotistical in chapter 15, verse 12. After a battle, he sets up a, a memorial to himself. That's a bad sign. I have a friend that says, it is time, you, you know there will be a war anytime the leader of a country starts putting up 50-foot-tall statues of themselves that never ends well Saul wanted the, the glory he set up his own altars he decided what he would offer when he would offer it he called the shots from then on so Samuel said no that's just not good God called you and you did not respond properly he will not listen to you and Saul gives himself away in chapter 15 verse 30 whenever he says that I may worship the Lord, your God. The capitals aren't original. I want you to see that. By that time, God was Samuel's God, not Saul's God, because Saul was Saul's God. And if we're honest, that's the God we have to fight most of the time, is the God in the mirror. The God that looks like us, likes what we like, and does what we want him to do. Like he was in an ark, a box. But God continues to call. So he points to another person. A very unlikely young man named David comes from, well, he's all wrong, really. His family's wrong. His age is wrong. His reputation is non-existent. He has no status. And yet God calls him and David responds. That's what he wants. That's what he's going for. There are many times I've looked at the job God's laid in front of me and I see the people that I've got and I don't say it to them because it's bruising for morale, but I'll go talk to God and say, I can't do that with this. I, I, I need more people who are better at it, or I need something. And God has always responded, you work with those who show up, and I'll take care of the rest. It's a, it's a thing that we've got to learn from God. David is still young. He visits his brothers who are off at war. Uh, it's a standoff. Now, this, this sounds really odd to us, but back in the day, you didn't throw everybody together to fight and kill and see who, who finally won the battle because that was just really a waste of resources. Besides, they're all amateurs. Uh, they're all farmers out there, and they don't know how to do this yet. And so, in fact, a lot of these battles, if you notice in 1 Samuel, they had no weapons. Why? They'd given them away. So they didn't have any. And you know, the hope is, well, maybe we'll find something. You know, we'll, we'll pick up Harry and use him. You know, I don't know. But it's, it, and so what you did was, 
you got their guy against your guy and you taunted each other until eventually the two of them came down and whoever killed the other one, then his team would chase your team off the field. That was the way battles were done. Even uh, those of you that uh, followed Scottish election and such know it was around a lot of Robert Bruce and William Wallace. Even then, the Battle of Bannockburn, the one that brought the, uh, the nationhood to Scotland again in the 1200s, was really decided by a battle of champions. You had the armies, but one of the guys from the English, one of the knights from the English side, cut loose, wanted the glory, chased across, and Robert the Bruce came this way, and Robert the Bruce won that one, and it turned into a rout. That's the way you do things. So Goliath's over there, he's a giant. He's tall and such, and he's saying, come on over, get some of this, and I'll kill you, and you know, you'll all be servants to us. And That's the way they fought back then. And David's going, he's calling, who's responding? And they're going, well, we're not going to. And he says, well, I will. And they're going, you're you just trying to make us look bad? Saul tries to give him armor and the like. And then David goes out. It's a great story. But have you ever noticed something? Even though David was moving on faith, he overarmed. He picked up five rocks. Only needed one. Even in our best times, our greatest moments of faith, we overarm and overprepare, do we not? God's got this. Just show up. Call and respond. Well, chapters 18 and 19, Saul is, is gone now, basically. He's paranoid. He's sick. An evil spirit is there. David comes in and out of his life, and, and Saul doesn't even recognize him half the time. And so Saul, once he, in his clearer moments, realizes David's a danger because he didn't know about the king thing yet. He doesn't know he's been anointed king to succeed him. What he knows is that the people love him. He's good looking. His own family, Michael, his daughter loves him. By the way, sad to say, that's the only time a woman is expressly said to love a man in the Old Testament outside of poetry. Um, she wanted to marry him. This was not an arranged marriage. Saul thought, all right, my daughter, if he marries her, her then I can control him. But she loved him. By the way, David treated her shamefully later in life. But that's ahead of our story. Saul's son loves him. This is not going to work. So he says, all right, all right, you want to marry Michael? You have to go, and there's no way to pretty this up. You have to go against the Philistines and bring 100 foreskins back to prove you killed them. Because they don't give that stuff up willingly. That's, that's proof. They're dead. And his, his idea was, uh, David will get killed. And that'll solve my issue. David comes back with 200. There is some humor there, if you're not a Philistine. Um, what's going on here is basically this. Saul's head and heart are full of the noise of the world. Power, control, politics. Get in charge of this. Move it forward. I'm the guy. All of that was in his head. He had no ability to hear God at this stage because the noise was too great. David was forced into becoming a guerrilla leader, but even then he kept his humor. Remember that time where he ate the food from the table of showbread that you're not supposed to eat? But Jesus said, well, he was hungry. It was all right. Well, he shows some of his humor there in chapter 21, verses 1 through 5. David went to Nob, to Ahimelech, the priest. Ahimelech trembled when he met him because he was a guerrilla leader. He was, you know, he might be a criminal. 
and said, Why are you alone? Why is no one with you? David answered Ahimelech the priest, The king sent me on a mission. Now, by the way, that might be a lie. Because Saul didn't send him, unless he's referring to God obliquely. The king sent me on a mission and said to me, No one is to know anything about the mission I'm sending you on. As for my men, I've told them to meet me at a certain place. No, nothing vague there. Now then, what do you have on hand? Give me five loaves of bread or whatever you can find. But the priest answered David, I don't have any ordinary bread on hand. However, there is some consecrated bread here, provided the men have kept themselves from women. David replied, Indeed, women have been kept from us. Now see, that's funny. Uh, as, as usual, when I set out, the men's body are holy even on missions that are not holy. How much more so today? In other words, we've not been able to find a woman and they won't have anything to do with us and so his he kept his humor by the time we get to chapter 23 Saul and David could not be any more different David is calling upon the Lord constantly and listening Saul's forgotten God and Saul has gone so far as to have one of his pet men kill the priest of God at Nob where David was killing the priest how far he fell so the book ends with David willing, uh, winning guerrilla and small unit actions all over the place while Saul loses his credibility loses his battle and eventually takes his own life but the book's not over our book ends there because you could only write so much on one scroll it's one book in two scrolls and in the Hebrew Bible it's one book but we split it for our tradition. So the story will continue next week. But we're not going to do a survey. Like I said, we're going to pick one story next week. But let's, let's just stop and step back from this story. Who are your heroes? And are they listening to the voices of the world or to the voice of God? Often, too often our heroes are egotistical themselves. I was raised, as many of you were, to have heroes. Mine were in the, the Royal Marines, and they were in the, the Black Watch units and, and such, the infantries. We were told to admire those who run to the sound of the guns, the run to the sound of screams, to the house on fire, to the car wreck where somebody is trapped, to the broken home where the children have no food, run to trouble not away from it to serve to the disordered world in other words people who listen to the calls and cries and respond we even call them first responders don't we Jesus was the first responder he saw what this world was like and he did not come against us with tanks and rifles but rather came in a form as a baby left heaven, came to us, responding to our prayers, our brokenness, our sinfulness, our deep, desperate need. And he continues to respond to this very day. He also calls, though. He calls. Would you stand with me, please? Before Mark leads us in a song to close us, this portion of our day out, an admonition be still create quiet time listen 
and then respond. Do not, when you call God, ask what his will is, for all of us know more of his will than we are already living up to. Instead, ask God to show you how to live up to the will and the good you already know to do. Create the still place. Give him the glory, and you will hear his voice.